0: Welcome to episode 140, Authenticity Isn't Easy, Navigating Through Grief During Gender Transition, featuring Xander Keg, licensed clinical social worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth E. and today I am excited to be joined by Xander Keg. Xander is a licensed clinical social worker in many states and also um, a specialist in the area of transgender and non-binary identity. Xander, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Absolutely, Beth. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So today we're going to be talking about a topic that is very complex and weighty in this conversation about. Addressing grief as part of gender transition. How did you develop this specialization in working with the transgender and non-binary community? Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more about you?
1: Absolutely. So I well, I'm a trans man myself. So as a as a member of the trans community and a mental mental health provider, it felt like a natural fit um, to be to be within the community and work with the community. I've also been a member of WPATH, the world professional. Association for transgender health um I've been a faculty member with their Global Education Institute since 2017 and I'm now a mentor for people who are seeking that certification as a gender specialist through Wpath so it, you know, it's both through teaching and through my clinical work. I did gender therapy for a while. I found myself in this really fantastic job with the US Navy between July 2016 and January 2019, where I was working with the transgender care team. And so I was a clinical case manager to that team. And I worked with somewhere between 250 and 300 active duty sailors and Marines who were going through a command approved gender transition. And so that job in and of itself, I don't, I don't know that it necessarily cemented me in into the field, but it it because it was a full-time, um, that's all I was doing job, it really did give me some credibility outside of just being a trans person, right? Because a lot of times people within, say, gender therapy world, they, they don't necessarily always consider trans people to be able to contribute to the field without immense um, subjectivity and uh, and the inability to reach objectivity. And so I feel like I can do a really good job of being both objective and subjective. And uh, I've really enjoyed you know the opportunity to be a consumer and a provider within the transgender community.
0: Thank you so much for your work. I mean, you are such an experienced clinician and also trainer. So today, why don't we start by talking about how this concept for this particular interview came up for you. Why this topic?
1: I was talking with another therapist who's also a a faculty member with WPATH, Global Education Institute, and we were talking about how there are family members in particular, because they were working with some family members who were experiencing grief and loss because a, a member of their family, a spouse or a child in particular, is going through a gender transition, uh, mostly medical, sometimes social gender transitions. And so I was talking to them about like, well, what what do you say to somebody who is expressing that they're, they're feeling lost because the person they knew is quote, gone? And you know they, they sort of pushed back a little bit on that and said, well, they're not gone. They're just becoming their authentic self. And I thought, well, I mean, I know I've heard that. I've heard people use that kind of languaging. And it got me to thinking, like, I know that's not the language I use to talk about my experience of gender transition. And I've talked with hundreds of other trans people, primarily trans men, and we all use different language. So I thought, has anybody actually done research to look into what are the different ways that we conceptualize and frame our gender our gender identity, our gender expression, our gender roles, um, our sexual orientation, the the prospect of, of actually, quote, changing genders or becoming our authentic selves or being gender affirming, like all these different, you know, uh, words and phrases that, that people speak all the time. And not very many people actually know what they mean when they're hearing these things. And a lot of times, I don't know that we actually know what we mean when we say them. And so I did find one study, just one, um, that was focusing on looking at the um, the types of conceptual frameworks, social conceptual frameworks that um, people use uh, to talk about their gender identity. Um, and then I looked at um, uh, this same researcher then looked at some of the ways that the frameworks in which people, well, the frameworks that people use socially and then the conceptualizations we have of ourself. And so that's Kristen Norwood. And she, she did a study back in 2012, or at least published in 2012, um, a paper called Grieving Gender, Trans Identities. Transition and Ambiguous Loss, and I went, oh, Ambiguous Loss, what's that? So then I went and looked up Ambiguous Loss and found that uh, there was a book written um, about Ambiguous Loss by Dr. Pauline Boss in the 1970s. And so these two things came together, and then that's when I started talking to people about it. And really, quite honestly, I experienced a lot of pushback from trans people, from therapists who work with trans people, from family members of trans people, from people who work in um, trans-specific um, organizations focused on youth. There's a lot of pushback on recognizing and or supporting the grief and loss process for family members and also for trans people.
0: As you're talking about it, I'm thinking about that concept of the dialectic, that both of these truths could be valid simultaneously, that someone can be their authentic self while still experiencing grief and loss and going through this process of coming to authentically represent themselves in in the world, in the community. So tell me more about this idea of ambiguous loss. What does that really mean? And how do you see this applied to this concept of gen- of grief and loss in relation to gender?
1: Ambiguous loss is defined as a loss that has no closure or ending. And it's broken up into two different kinds or two different parts. There's physical ambiguous loss, which can be summarized by the phrase gone without goodbye. Right. So like... Um, Maybe because of natural disaster or war or a plane crash, we've lost someone or something, right? Physical ambiguous loss. And then there's psychological ambiguous loss, which is goodbye without being gone, right? That, That phrase captured it. So, for example, dementia, addiction, or gender transition, right? So, for example, my father, he has dementia now. And sometimes he remembers who I am. And sometimes he thinks I'm one of his brothers. And so he'll call me Xander. Sometimes he'll call me Sven. That was my uncle's name. And so, you know, he's physically still present. I'm still physically present. But my relationship with my father is not at all what it has been or what it was up to, you know, for the for at least 54 years of my life right so so he's not physically gone he's still physically present but i have a loss that i'm experiencing because my relationship with him has changed dramatically so when we're going when somebody's in addiction the same thing can happen it's like you can see the person they're right there but perhaps they're just incoherent they're not um Capable of, of recognizing, you know, what they're doing or where they are. Sometimes with mental illness, right? If somebody's in a psychotic um, episode, they're, you know, they're they're there, but they're not they're the same person that you know, right? In how they are in that moment. With gender transition, with all the different conceptualizations and frameworks. Right. For some people, this can feel like I can see my son or daughter. I can see my husband or wife. I can see my brother or sister, my mother or my father. They're right there. They're in the room with me. I can I can talk to them on the phone. I can do email exchanges with them, but they're changing right before my eyes. And so I'm experiencing a loss, they might say, because if that person's not my husband anymore, who are they and who am I? Am I not a wife anymore? And are we in a lesbian relationship now? Do I want to be a lesbian? I mean, so we go, you know, people go through that, you know, it's like that used to be my son. Now they're saying they're my daughter and they're telling me that that they never were my son. And it's like, but I know I gave birth to them. The doctor said it's a boy. Um, so who am I if I'm not the mother to my son? I don't know how to be the mother to my daughter or vice versa. Right. So. That's that's where it's coming in this idea of ambiguous loss when it's relating specifically to to the psychological ambiguous loss and in particular, the gender transition component of that.
0: Why do you think it's difficult for not just clinicians, but for people in general to hold this concept? Why, why does it feel like it's in opposition to the concept of authentic self?
1: Well, I think it breaks down when you start looking at the two different social conceptual frameworks that were identified by by Miss Norwood in her research. You have the biological essential essentialism framework, right? So the biology influences precede cultural influences. So we have a we have a sex. Right. We have a chromosomal sex, a natal sex, a biological sex, a sex assigned at birth. Right. There's a lot of different ways to phrase that. We have a birth certificate and the, the word male or female in most states and some states are changing that now is recorded on that document. Right. So biological essentialism We're men and we're women and some of us are male and female, I should say. And some of us are um, intersex or have a um a differentiation of the sex condition where it's instead of XX or XY, it's XXX or XXY or YYX. There's a lot of different combinations. And then there's the social constructionism conceptual framework, right? The culture influences precede biological influences, so it doesn't matter. It does, like in my case, it doesn't matter if I had a social constructionist worldview. It wouldn't matter to me that my my sex recorded on my birth certificate and the reproductive capacity that I was born with is categorized as female because I live in the world as a man now, and so I can completely deny or reject or dismiss entirely this concept of biological sex. And I can just live in the world as a man, as a trans man, a transgender man, a transsexual man, right? There's many different ways to talk about it. Whereas there are gonna be some people who are gonna say, no, even trans people who say, no, biological sex exists, whether you call it biological or natal or chromosomal, right? These things are within biology, the science of biology. And so, for example, I could say, I live in the world as a man, my sex is female. I can say that I actually do say that I don't have a problem saying that now do I say it to my neighbor no do I tell everybody I work with no Um, but I tell my doctor I want my doctor to know what my birth sex or natal sex is because they it might determine which medications they prescribe to me the dosage of that medication the delivery method the the interval in which I take those medications so I, I do want them to know that but it's not necessarily something that everybody needs to know about. So when you think about just the different way that people conceptualize, there's a lot of tension between biological essentialism and social constructionism. There is a way to overlap it a little bit, but most people find themselves in one or two of these groupings.
0: And you're saying that because of these groupings and kind of the steadfast adherence to one or the other, that's where it crashes into this idea of grief and loss, depending on how you're conceptualizing gender?
1: Well, it's so you go from the, the conceptual frameworks of biological essentialism or social constructionism, and then into a conceptualization of self. Right. And so, um, uh, based on the research, there were two conceptualizations of self identified sovereign and social. So the sovereign self I- identity is inborn and independent of the body. So people who have a sovereign, uh, self conceptualization might talk about things like a soul or a mind, right? That, that, that their, their personhood exists within them in this non, um, physical way, the body way. And then a social self conceptualization, um, identity is malleable, right? Material and observable, meaning my body, how I appear to other people socially, by the clothes I wear, the way I style my hair, whether I put on or not put on, you know, makeup on my my face, uh, the, the intonations I take with my voice, right? So the sovereign self, the beyond the body, or internal to the body versus social self, which is the external, what we show to the world, what is observable by others. So it's like those frameworks, those social uh, frameworks, and then these conceptualizations of self, when you look at those those four things, right, the two frameworks and the two conceptualizations, it turns out that there's four different sense-making frames that can come out of that because of how you link the, the two from one to the two with the other. So in the research, it goes into um, some great detail about these four different transition sense-making frames uh, labeled as replacement, revision, evolution, and removal. And so based on the interlocking between, well, what what's the difference between having a biological essentialist and a social self-conceptualization? Con- How does that manifest versus somebody who has biological essentialism as their conceptual framework, but self-sovereign so conception of self? The next is evolution. That's if you take a social, that's for people who take a social constructionist you know, worldview um, meaning man, woman, not male, female, right? Social constructionism, and then you you merge that into somebody who has um, either a social or sovereign self, and then the last one is removal, which is it's unanchored by either frameworks um, or concepts. It's it's like it's. Individuals who completely create new meanings for themselves. Um, that was one of the that was the fourth um, uh, sense making frame that was identified from the participants in the research. So I thought that I found that really interesting. And I see that that's that's a fairly common thing, especially nowadays, right? This research was done in 2000 or published in 2012, but if you think about 2021, there's a plethora of identity labels that people have now. There's a lot of this self sense making, but I would imagine that some of it is still influenced by social conceptual uh, frameworks and also by uh, conceptualizations of the self. It's just that we don't talk in this kind of language uh, you'll probably hear people more often than not say that are trans say, I don't really know how to describe who I am and how I feel and how I came to understand this about myself. It it's quite complex and convoluted. Honestly, I I don't necessarily feel comfortable in explaining or describing it um most often. It did help to find this research because at least it gives me an idea of how how one person was able to make sense out of the research that they gathered. But it's not like I've committed to memory and I can just say, oh yeah, I have this framework and this conceptualization. Um, I because I don't tend to talk that way. And I don't, you know, that's it's very academic. Um, so I'm I'm still trying to make my own sense out of it without completely um, crafting my own, um, you know, meaning making. I haven't done that either. I'm just not sure where I where I where I am in all of this different um, sense making
0: for you as someone who works predominantly with people who are either in transition or, you know, are working through gender. How do you talk about this? Because what you just said is so heady and academic. How do you frame that in terms of psychoeducation to make space to talk about this complexity in the therapy room?
1: Well, part of what I do is I listen to the languaging, right? I listen to the words that that clients use because people it's pretty it's pretty common for people to use language. Um, that suits them at least for the time being. And, and, and we can, we can, um, cue into that, right? We can pay attention to how are they describing their experience? What kinds of words are they using, right? So if we think about the biological essentialism being about our sex and we think of social constructionism being about our gender, well, how are our clients talking? Are they using language that's more foundational to a biological essentialism are they talking about right their sex versus their gender right are they transsexual or transgender that's that could be in and of itself, that's a controversial question to even ask. Um, using the term transsexual can be often very um, controversial. I use it because that's the word I use to talk about myself. But it's it's not a word that people – I wouldn't recommend that anybody just start calling people they think are trans transsexual because it's typically not going to be true. Um, but typically, people who are transsexual are using more of a biological essentialism frame right to say yeah you know the the doctor said male and i grew up you know um socialized as male and i and i um I may have had some incongruency, but there's going to be a, a variety of, of levels of that. Some people have really severe incongruency and some people have fairly mild incongruency with their, with their sex and their gender. Um, and so I listen to how people talk about their gender um, and what terms they're using. And of course, some people use a lot of terms interchangeably as if they're synonymous. And they're not technically synonymous. So we have to kind of listen under or through that a little bit. Cause for example, people might say, Oh, I'm a, I'm a trans female. And, but they take a very social constructionist viewpoint. So they're more gender focused than sex focused. But they'll refer to themselves as trans female. It's like, well, maybe maybe it's trans woman because female is the biological category or we're running into an issue where people completely um, either disregard or are intent on uh, dismantling or deconstructing or some of the words you might hear. Even the notion of biological sex. Um, which is why now there's there's um, you know movements in uh, in Britain in particular in the United States of uh, you know feminine groups of feminists who are pushing back on yeah there are definitely females and we are those right so there so it's there's some pushback on this from outside of the community. It's quite an interesting thing to start talking, you know, to start talking about, but also to experience. So I listen to what people say, and then I ask them questions that have to do with everyday kinds of ways that we might be expressing our gender. We might be experiencing our gender. So... I'll pay attention to maybe how they're dressing and I'll notate it. Um, and I did that for one client, um, in particular that I recall where for the first like seven or eight times we met to- together, this is somebody who was, um, you know, their original birth ticket said male. They're identifying as a transgender woman. They had not yet started any social or medical transition, no legal process at all. And they were showing up to therapy sessions in like, really disheveled um, in their clothing, right? They weren't grooming. Their hair was all messed up. They were in like raggedy sweatpants and a raggedy kind of overstretched T-shirt and flip-flops. And and then all of a sudden, one day they show up to session and they're wearing a really tight multicolored um, like dress from the 70s, you know, like think of, uh, you know, like a go-go dancer dress, uh, go-go boots and a parasol um, and makeup and a new haircut. I mean, literally, I saw them one week before completely disheveled. They made a significant um, switch in how they were presenting. And i it's because they had gone to the clinic and gotten their hormones. And so they had started hormones and thought, OK, now I'm going to do it and changed everything about themselves just like that. So it was really interesting to see that, to observe it um, play out that way. And the things they started talking about, the topics changed, um, the way they sat changed, Um everything changed it was so fascinating i hadn't had that experience before and um so it was new for me so i was i was really paying attention to it and you know i was i would i would ask them questions that had to do with um what were the things they were doing just throughout their day that they considered gendered right because they would make comments like you know i i want to do more feminine things now and i would say Well, what are feminine things, right? I I would just get them talking about those, like, cause then that would, that helped me understand how they were making sense of their world. Um, And, and largely what I, I, what I noticed was that there is a lot of, because it's so complex, even the way people talk about their own experience can be kind of complex and it can almost seem to, um, conflict, I guess it can, people can take both. They can hold biological perspectives and social constructionist. And this does exist. There's, you know, people actually, you know, there's a field of study where it's combined together. But generally speaking, it's it's not as common. So, So then having to sort out, like, are they just confused? Do they are they more set in biological essentialism than they are in social constructionism? Are they really okay? Are they comfortable with these things, you know, melding together a little bit? Uh, So it's it's just getting into the nitty gritty of how people talk about their experience and then also things that have to do with how do they want to be different in the world? Right. It's when I when I was maybe a year on testosterone, it was pretty clear to me that people saw me differently. They were treating me very differently. So that led me to believe, well, that means I can be different. I can actually change my own self if I wanted, not just my outward self, not how I looked and sounded. I could actually start, I could take up a new hobby. I could um, join a different kind of social club. I could get involved in You know, activities that I had never either been interested in, like, or maybe I was interested, but I saw that it as being like, not, not something I wanted to do, because maybe it was too feminine, or it was right there are all kinds of ways in which we get to reinvent ourselves. And there might even be some trial and error with that, you know, sort of like in adolescence with teenagers. They go through trial and error with uh, what they wear and thinking that they might like boys or girls. And oh, it's actually both. And oh, there's more than just boys and girls. And right, the the shifts and and turns and twists that come with adolescence. We get to do that um, as adults, which is both exciting and, you know, can be somewhat painful, you know, socially and, and psychologically.
0: For our listeners, John Sovek had joined me and we had this conversation about the continual coming out process. And so I want to point you to that as another resource as Xander and I are having this conversation about identity and how we exist in the world and how we make sense of it. Um, When recognizing clinically that a client you believe is experiencing ambiguous loss, how do you talk to them about that idea? Um, I know it's something in my work that I see frequently I see it with family members as well and this idea that we had whatever concept growing up or you know in having this child and one day they'll be married and to a nice man and, you know whatever that was and all of these ideas that there's this this concept of loss but for you how do you talk about that with clients and with families how is it different how is it the same depending on who you're talking to
1: well this is where um... Christian Norwood's research has come in handy for me because when we look at the four different transition sense making frames, there's a way to, to look at how the person is framing and conception, framing their life and can, you know, their personhood and conceptualizing, you know, how they are out in the world. And so, and when you relate it to gender transition, there's a, there's a way in which, um, how to frame then, uh, the ambiguous loss that frame right there's even going to be a different frame so for example when we look at um, replacement right which is one of the transition sense making frames when we look at replacement replacement again is anchored by biological essentialism and social self-concept right so for example um, the what a trans person might say, uh, is you know i'm a different person now right they're they're replacing who they were with who they are right i'm a different person now so the sex is viewed as natural binary fundamental component of their of their personhood cuz they take this biological essentialist viewpoint i'm a different person i've transitioned from female to male or male to female is another thing you might hear someone say right male and female are considered fundamentally different categories of personhood from being a man or a woman right in this replacement frame so for ambiguous loss it's looking at grieving the loss of the self the 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 self that's being replaced so that that's, that's where the lost would go. Like, so somebody, you know, the idea of like, I had a parent might say, I had a blue hair, blue eyed daughter and now I have a blonde haired blue eyed son. Um, right. So they're, they're trying to frame their world in this replacement mode from this to this. And so the ambiguous loss is, well, that, that person that they quote lost, right. The person that's being replaced, um, A lot of people, you'll hear trans people say, you know, I'd psyched myself up for the transition, thinking I was just going to be like a, a personality change. Um, I would grow a beard or I would, you know, I would, I would grow breasts, whatever, you know, direction people are going in. Um, but then all of a sudden they didn't expect that they would feel grief at the fact that they were losing their relationship as father to their child or husband to their wife or mother to their child or wife to their husband or wife to their partner, right? If they were in a lesbian relationship. So, right. So it's like, they're, they that's the loss they're experiencing is they're experiencing because I'm not that anymore. I'm now this. And so if you go into the revision that that sense making frame for gender transition, it's still biological essentialism, but now it's in the sovereign self. Right. And so you might hear people say things like um, they're the same person on the inside or I'm the same person on the inside. Right. So sex is viewed as an internal component of personhood, their anatomy, their chromosomes or hormones. They don't identify Um, Or they don't indicate, you know, whether someone is a man or a woman. And you'll hear people say that, like that's a fairly common thing, you know, or people might say, I've always been a man uh, or male or I've always been female. And so with the ambiguous loss, the focus there is um, that maybe what's happening is somebody is partially avoiding grieving the loss of that self Right. Because they've made a revision instead of a replacement. They've just revised. I'm still the same person I've always been, even though they may start to look and sound very differently. That to them is inconsequential. Right. Um, and so so there there might be a focus on making sure that there's not some sort of uh, grief that maybe it's not, you know, make sure that it's just not being avoided um, instead of just accepting, you know, on the surface, like, okay, you're still the same person inside. Um, but then when you go to the evolution sense-making um, frame for gender transition, now this is social constructionism, and then it's sort of a hybrid of social and sovereign self. And so you what you might hear people say are... Um, I'm progressively changing into my authentic self or they they're now their authentic self. Um, You might also hear people say things like, I'm both the same and different, right? This is getting to your point about what if it's both, right? I'm both the same and different. So with the, I'm progressively changing into my authentic self or I'm becoming my authentic self, right? The before self leads into and is part of the after self. So it's not a replacement and it's not a revision. It's just a natural evolution that they're going through, right? That's how they're making sense of it. In the, I'm both the same and different, right? The the male and female are divergent yet compatible, right? They can can, um, identify or occupy both identities, just not at the same time. So you might hear people, um, who are maybe non-binary, gender non-conforming, gender fluid, where they they kind of feel a sense of like, well, I'm kind of male some days and I'm female other days, or I feel more like a man or more like a woman. They might even change the way they dress. For them, it's more of an evolution. And so loss is a little bit neutralized for people that may have this gender transition frame um, because in some ways they're gaining something um, that's new because they're they're evolving they're they there's something different about them that's new and exciting um that doesn't cause the same sort of um uh, maybe internalized sense of incongruence or dysphoria um, or the external right so, so you might hear somebody say, you know, um, I had a son. Now I have a daughter. I have the memories of my son and I'll build new memories of my daughter going forward. You know, Lacey was my daughter. Kyle is my son. Like they're speaking about the same person. Lacey was my daughter and Kyle is my son. So they're talking about the same child. So that's kind of the evolution. So it's like ambiguous loss, like how to talk about the loss people might be experiencing. It It can depend on these. …on these frameworks. Um, And then the final is removal, which is – it's unanchored, of course, remember by any of the – either of the frameworks, essentialist, the biological or the social constructionist, or by either social or uh, self uh, or sovereign uh, conceptualizations of self, right? So – you're going to hear people say things like sex and gender are irrelevant to personhood, right? They just completely remove the notions of sex and or gender from their identity entirely. So you might hear people there like other kins or they, they take on new terminology that people don't yet know. So they're not easily sort of pocketed into something that people go, oh, I know what that means. Um, or they'll say I'm neither male or female, right? People say that. You hear people say it all the time. They're creating a non-sexed gendered self. Right. So some people create a like a new identity, a new gender. Some people just reject gender and sex altogether. Right. So the ambiguous loss focus would be um, uh, for some people. This also would then help them to somewhat avoid or it might even alleviate a sense of grief and loss, because if you can just sort of reject it all, um, you might not feel the need. There's nothing to grieve. That doesn't mean that there won't be grief, but in this framework, it's harder to see um, that that process. So, you know, because some you might say to yourself, "Well, how do I reconcile losing my dad but keeping my dad at the same time?" Right? It's it's even more ambiguous in some sense, but it it the loss doesn't seem to be as tangible, right? Um, or I used to think I had a daughter who became my son, but now sex has become irrelevant to my perception of Jackson. Right? It's just Jackson now. It's not the son or daughter. It's not even the child. Right? It's like Jackson. It's this. It's this person. Um, so it. It again. It's it's still complex, um, and it would it takes time to really feel comfortable. Um, Thinking in this way, talking about it. I mean, maybe even people can hear me as we're talking. Like, it it doesn't just roll off the tongue. That's for sure. It is still fairly heady and academic. But when we get down to these phrasings, right? I'm neither male or female. I'm both the same and different. I've always been fill in the blank, or I transitioned from blank to blank, right? These are phrasings that we've heard our clients say, you know, if we do, if we've done any significant work in the trans community. So when we think about just the phrasing, then that will help us recall what the sense-making framework is and what the ambiguous loss focus can be.
0: Within the community, Tell me about these different sense-making frameworks and how they either complement or kind of crash into each other about the quote-unquote right way to view oneself.
1: Well, there are going to be a lot of collisions because we all make sense of our world very differently, right? Just within the human population, there are many, many, many worldviews. And so, You know, there are people that we share a worldview with, and so we tend to cluster together with people who share our worldview. Um, but we are aware that there are people who have other worldviews. Well, there's, it's gonna be no different within the trans community, right? Which is made up of many, many, many different identity groups. And so, We're gonna have people that make very different sense of the world. They have different moral foundations. They have different core values. And so we bring, right, that part of ourself um, we bring into our, you know, it's part of our self as a trans person. So we we're bringing this whole complex person, you know, ourself into the trans community. And so we're going to, uh, encounter other trans people who, who are adamantly opposed to how we make sense of the world and how we make sense of our own body and our experience. We're going to meet therapists who, um, who have a worldview and a conceptualization that's very, very different. And. And if we don't, if we don't get um, to a place where more of us can be open to and hold that there's many, many different ways to make sense of the world, to make sense of our being, and to make sense of our identity, and those expressions of that identity. Um, without that, I think we're going to have people who are going to be either um, misdirected. They're going to lose direction. Um, I think there are going to be people who are going to experience more gender dysphoria than maybe they need to because they don't know that there's so many different ways that they can frame and conceptualize themselves because they've been given, you know, a packaged deal. Here's how you should conceptualize yourself and here's how you should frame your experience. And that's it, right? That's the only way to do it because – you know, that's the dominant narrative, um, you know, in the trans Twitter universe. And it's like, that's just not the truth. Right. That's so. So I think it takes a certain amount of self-efficacy. We really need to be able to um, know exactly what we need and want, and we need to advocate for ourselves. We need to be able to set boundaries. We need to be able to, right, We. these are things we have to either learn or we need to cultivate. We need to go seek people who can help us, you know, um, hone those skills or else we're going to be like a pinball in a pinball machine just getting whacked around by people who are who are directing us into how to be the right kind of trans person. And um, that's not going to work for um, a large number of people. A large number of people in the trans community are going to be grieving um, what what I would phrase as gendered meanings, right? They're going to be experiencing a loss of gendered expectations and a a loss of gendered relationships and a loss of gendered identities, right? These are things that we live these things. Now, is this going to be as true for a 14-year-old Who's going through a social transition as a fifty four year old who's, um, you know, a relationship is ending and they're starting a medical transition? Absolutely not, necessarily. right? So we 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 have to hold in in mind the context of the person, the place, and and the time. But in general, right? If we're married, there's a particular set of expectations whether we buy into them or not, whether we adhere to the social norms associated with marriage or not, they're they're external to us as well. And we may be married to somebody who holds more traditional views of things than we do about gender. And so they're going to be impacted whether we are or aren't and whether we want them to be or not, right? So it's just a it's also just thinking about the the truism of of lived experience, right? And that's all the rage now is getting things from the lived experience. Well, I value the lived experience of people who share very, very um, divergent worldviews for me. And I value the lived experience of people who challenge me and, and, and want me to speak differently. Um, I'm not going to probably, but I do value, right, that lived experience of the family member who's grieving and the family member who's not grieving. I think that they're all valid. Um, experiences um, of their circumstances and situation.
0: As you talk about that, it harkens back to what you said at the beginning of our conversation and that idea of balancing the objective and the subjective, because for a cis person to be working with, uh, working with somebody who's trans or non-binary or in transition, to be considering this, of course, we have our own framework, but not the lived experience of that versus someone who has lived experience and may or may not have ever gone the heady academic route to really define it and say, you know, option two, that's me. That's how I explain this thing that I'm going through with a sprinkling of option four. And then to sit in the room with somebody who is option three and have that potential dissonance and discord in the way that they present and how they make sense of it.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I've heard from countless trans people who have had that experience um, in in sessions with clinicians. Um, and, I, you know, I think people mean well. These are not conversion therapists, by the way. These are people who um, market themselves as gender affirming therapists. These are people who have been through um, trainings. To be gender-affirming therapists. They may even have friends who are trans, you know, which is kind of a funny thing to think of saying because you can't really use that for other affinity groups. So I have friends who are blah, blah, blah. Um, but sometimes it works and that you know people use that phrasing. And so what I find is that um, again, I think they're well intentioned. Uh, What I think is that what happens too often is that people are very limited in their exposure to multiple um, trans people who frame their identities and their experience in multiple ways. And so... Uh, for example, I had, I had an encounter with a therapist just a couple of months ago who, um, has a family member that is non-binary and is really, really active in asserting the, the family member is very active in, in asserting that, that that being non-binary is somehow superior to being binary, right? They, they kind of use languaging that makes it sound like somebody like me who is, quote, binary trans man, that somehow my lived experience is either less valid or it's actually problematic because somehow I'm reinforcing some really terrible thing they might call like hegemonic masculinity or something like that, right? So again, all academic terms, but that's how people... So this, this therapist was was heavily influenced by that family member. And so uh, now they're working with some clients and some of them are non-binary, some of them are gender fluid, gender non-conforming, but that doesn't mean that they all have the same Uh, views as this family member it doesn't mean that they all take the same um have the same concepts of themselves as a non-binary person they might be using the same terminology but they might live it out very very differently but i could tell from my conversation with this therapist that they didn't really think or they didn't realize that there might be if you met a 100 non-binary people you might hear like close to 100 different ways that they conceptualize and frame their identity, even though they're all using the same word. Um, and so I, I just, you know, I, I do it fairly um, diplomatically and casually and gently. Um, by just maybe telling some stories, you know, oh, well, I was working with a non-binary client a few years back and this is what they said. And I, I might, in, you know, just sort of interject in that way because I, I don't subscribe to a call-out culture. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna call out a therapist. I'm just gonna maybe give them some other examples to see if they're, they can expand their worldview, right? Their paradigm of how they're viewing gender. Uh, because I don't think that they're malicious. I don't think they're, um, have ill intent. I just think that they have very limited exposure and they're going out into the world and saying, I'm a gender therapist, and maybe it's too soon for them to really hang out that, you know, that sign. Maybe they need a little bit more exposure, a little bit more training to understand um, just how diverse our community is. Or else they might lose those clients because they don't like how they're being talked to. Or they might um, they might get a um, a more oh more vulnerable client that is susceptible to being directed if they're taking a more directive you know um, intervention model and so they might easily be you know directed and it turns out it might be a misdirection for them and they're only going to find out about it later. Um, meaning the client, right? The patient's going to realize, oh, that really wasn't the right thing for me. Um, But maybe they're not even working with that therapist anymore. So the therapist might not even know that it wasn't working for that client at the time.
0: There's so many levels of this. I mean, this is a conversation that you and I could keep going for a while um, because of the depth of even just this concept of how we in the room as therapists, with our own belief systems, with our own values, with our own meaning making. How we sit with that in the room and either project that all over our clients or be aware of that almost natural projection and try to swallow it back up and approach it with what I call anthropological eyes. So with a curiosity of not assumptions about how things should be, but with awareness of how they are for that person's worldview and their lived experience and kind of checkity checking our belief systems at the door. But I, I'm glad you bring up that piece and that conflict, even within the, the clinical community of how these frameworks can create conflict and how we define ourselves and then how we expect others to define themselves as well.
1: Absolutely. I mean, and it takes a lot of time, right? Sorting out all of this sense making while going through a social and or medical transition or considering one, there's a lot of factors because we're also maybe we're going to school, maybe we're working, right? Maybe we're in relationship. It's like we're dealing with so many different things. And now we've got this other thing that we're dealing with. And so just being able to, you know, have self compassion, right? Compassion for the self and for the clinician to also maybe, you know, practice some self-compassion for, you know, not needing to get it right with each client and maybe actually, you know, misstepping from time to time and just, you know, just having compassion for the fact that we're human and we're, we're imperfect um, and, and that that's that's just part of life. Um that and, and there are ways to, you know, there are ways to to deal with the grief. Um, I, I just wanted to give a few more phrasings because I think it helps people to understand maybe from statements that they've heard what I mean by some of this, um, the grieving that's going on. So, for example, um, you might hear clients, whether they're trans or, or family members say, I love him as my son, but not as my daughter. Right. So this is a, somebody who's struggling with uh, with somebody who's who's doing some sort of transition um, from from male to female. Right. I definitely feel that I lost my daughter and I haven't quite worked that through. Right. I've lost. They feel they've lost. They're not dead. Right. Although it's interesting about this idea of. um The idea that we don't die, right? That's why it's ambiguous. We don't die. But some people use a term called dead name, and then they get angry at their parents for referring to them by the name that was given to them by these parents. So they're like, I'm still me. Uh, You know, I'm just becoming more authentic. Quit using my dead name. So it's almost like a mixed message. Well, are you or aren't you dead, right? I think parents might, that might confuse some people. Um, because we're, we're mixing, you know, metaphors, maybe, um, the loss of your imagined future for your child completely gets turned on its head, right? Like I had this whole, like you said, I had this whole future planned out for my son or my daughter, right? My grandchildren, um, some people might say I'm, I'm grieving the shell of a dream that has vanished, right? That's another, right? That's a bit more, you know, um, uh, you know, something out of literature almost, right? Um, the grief came not from losing a daughter, but from losing my identity as my daughter's father. This is a phrase that I took from the research, right? So this father is saying, I'm not grieving that I lost a daughter. I'm grieving that I'm no longer the father to a daughter because there is a message out there in the world. You know, daddy's little princess and father-daughter dances, right? Like, so this guy had a really strong connection with being the father of a daughter. I don't know if he has sons. Maybe he doesn't know how to be a father to a son. How, how are you a father to a son who is now well past the age of, you know, tossing the ball in the front yard as, you know, to use something really conventional. Um, my ideal life included having a husband, a man who took the lead. Now it's 50 50. I've lost my ideal notion of a marriage, right? So here's a, here's a wife, right? Married to a husband, right? A woman married to a man and, she wanted that conventional sense of a marriage and she had it right. Her husband did take the lead. Now her husband is going through a gender transition and wants to, um, doesn't want to take the lead anymore. Doesn't want to fulfill the, the gendered expectations of a husband of a man in a relationship. And so now this, this wife, right? This woman is completely, um, destabilized in her own sense of self and her marriage, Right, so these are things that we might hear people talk about. Right, this is the non-academic, heady stuff. So for listening, where right, we can just be listening for how people are talking about their experience, and then and then maybe we can go back and say, okay, it sounds like they take more of an essentialist than a social constructionist, you know, um, frame or worldview of them. You know, so we can do that, and then we can mirror that back, not using academic language.
0: In terms of recognizing that statement that indicates ambiguous loss, I know there are lots of different perspectives on this, but I'm curious through your lens in the work and the research that you've done, what kind of quote unquote resolution do you see in relation to ambiguous loss? What does that mean? And and I, this launches into its own conversation about what is loss, how do we resolve it, and what does resolution mean? But I'm curious for you, when, you, when you're working with someone, what are the phrases that let you know, okay, this person is working through this or maybe has worked through this for now, if we're looking at coming out as an ongoing process? Um, what does resolved ambiguous loss look like?
1: Yeah, that is a whole big... <laughs> whole big topic. Um, what I can say is, because I'm not an expert in this subject of ambiguous loss by any means, means I'm just, I've dipped my toe into how it, how it um, relates specifically to gender transition. I'm, 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 I'm hoping to get a lot more um, knowledgeable on the topic, that's for sure, because it is quite um, complex. I think, you know, when we were looking back at some of the frameworks for how people were making sense of of their gender transition right the replacement revision evolution and removal uh, sense making frames there there were a couple in particular um, evolution and um, removal that were that for some people that's just where they start um, and and in in those two sense making frames there seems to be, at least based on the research, there seems to be uh, a much milder experience of, of loss. Uh, it's not so um, central to personhood because they're making sense of their, of their world and their experience by saying, I'm both the same and different, or I'm neither male or female. And so those actually seem to be, uh, two of the, the sense making frames that come with the lower levels of this grief, right? It's the ones where people are a bit more, um, you know, very, um, beholden to either biological essentialism um, or social constructionism, but mostly biological essentialism, where they're going from one thing to another, or they're stating, I've always been right. I'm just becoming, I'm just, my external is finally matching my internal is another way you might hear it say. So individuals like that, it's like, I think what, what would be helpful is to not necessarily move them out of those frameworks into another framework but to help them within their framework um maybe come to a different understanding of this the sense of themselves in relationship to the world and other people um it might be that they're feeling a lot of pushback so think about the Think about if your patient or client is the, um, quote, husband of that wife who's like, I had this expectation of a 50-50 or a, a non-50-50 relationship. My husband was going to take the lead, and now I've got this other person, and they're saying they're my wife, and they want to do 50-50. So just think about you're working with that client, and in that relationship with their wife um, or spouse, I'm not sure how they would even talk about it, that might be exacerbating a lot of their um, sense making because they have this strong pushback. So one of the things we can do is maybe um, find a way to interject a completely different Um, But not challenging the wife necessarily, just giving another option to the client, to the patient um, of, well, there's uh, there's a lot of different ways that you and other people, you know, look at this situation and maybe just try to do some expanding, you know, expansion, meaning making with people um, to let them know that. That the experience they're having with this one family member or with their family maybe in its entirety is not necessarily the experience you're going to have with your coworkers at, at your job or your classmates at school or your your peers, um, you know, in your, you know, your social um, organizations, you know, to otherwise it, it might, it might um, almost, um, I think it could stunt somebody into, they might not even go through transition some people stop transition because they think they're only going to encounter these negative things um a lot of people i think can stop transition because going through grief grief is uncomfortable right it's uncomfortable in the body it's uncomfortable you know in the mind it's uncomfortable emotionally um We're not necessarily sure how to talk about it. And so sometimes people will just sort of put the brakes on and and back up because they don't want to go through that. So it's I think it's just setting the stage to let people know, like, um, you know, well, what 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 are the what are the feelings of grief that you have? Just introduce it like because they might not know that it's acceptable for them to have it because there's a long there's a strong message out there that, well, there's nothing to grieve. There's nothing to grieve because supposedly the more dominant, the more societally dominant um, sense-making frame for, for gender transition, the two are either I've transitioned from this to this or I've always been this or this. Those are the two dominant ones. And so... You know, if you're if you're a person who believes that you're transitioning from male to female and you're encountering a, a transgender social circle with where everybody else believes that they've always been female, they were never male, well, that's gonna be a really interesting social space to be in. Um, and so they might expect, oh, well, that's how my therapist is is gonna think of things too, and that's how my my peers are gonna think about it. They might not know that there's all these different frameworks. So it's just inviting people to to talk honestly about how they're feeling and introducing them to the possibility that there's that there's some perhaps there's some loss and they might be experiencing some grief.
0: I think everything you just said is so helpful in clarifying the importance of making space for that and giving a word to it by saying grief so that if it's something that the client connects with, they have the opportunity to go into that proverbial room because you're, you're saying this room exists for some people. What's it like for you instead of just waiting for a client to bring it up?
1: Another another aspect of, of grief and loss that can come up for somebody is when they're grieving, you know, one of these um, gendered meanings of things. Right, like let's say there, it's a particular kind of identity. Like I'm the big sister, right? And so they might be grieving the fact that they're not the big sister anymore. They might be grieving the fact that they're they've lost their big sister. And so one of the things that we can do as therapists is we can we can attempt to disrupt some of the um, aspects I, um, of gender identity and gender behavior that are taken for granted. It's like, well, what do you love? You know, what do you love about your big sister? Oh, I love this, that and the other thing. Well, well, maybe maybe your big brother is going to do those things too, right? Like maybe an older sibling, maybe that's just an older sibling way of being in the world. Maybe it's not a big sister or big brother, right? Maybe we can reframe for people like you, you might hear people say, oh, I'm, you know, I, I stopped, I stopped going to that hobby group of mine where we were, you know, building, uh, little planes and flying them, you know, cause it was all men and I just, I just didn't think it was the right place for me. And I'm, I mean, women don't do that. You can be like, says who? <laughs> who says women don't build model planes and, and fly them in the sky with those little hand controllers, right? Like, Do what you want to do, like be however you want to be. So sometimes the grief and loss that we associate with our gender transition is because we feel beholden to Men don't do this or women don't do that or men can't do this or women can't do that. And so people who take a I'm a neither or or they're all stupid, they don't have those same. They don't run into those. It's more the people who have gone from one thing to the other. um, That's that's more likely to happen or people who are like, I've always been They're They're going to be able to integrate more, um, you know, their hobbies or their activities. They're not as gendered.
0: So, Xander, you and I have talked about a lot in this last hour with the few moments we have left, where do we go from here clinically with this kind of perspective and increase in awareness about these different experiences, different frameworks, and then the concept of grief and loss?
1: Well, I can definitely recommend, I'm, I'm a big reader, so I'm going to recommend some, some um, reading material. So I would definitely recommend that people read Ambiguous Loss by Dr. Pauline Boss, B-O-S-S. Um, I definitely recommend that people read Transgender Emergence from Arlene Istar lev and LCSW. Um, and so this is talking about uh, the developmental stages, but within the context of trans people and, and trans um, identification um, and, and emergence. So Transgender Emergence uh, is another book I would recommend. And then I would also recommend that people um, go online and locate the... Um, the Kristen Norwood um, essay that was published in 2012, Grieving Gender, Trans Identities, Transition, and Ambiguous Loss. Um, it's in a journal called Communication Monographs, but it's available for people who have access to those different portals, either through a li- academic library um, or one of those um, places where academics converge online and they have access to each other's papers. Um, so, so that's definitely a place to, to look into that. Um, because there's so much information like in order to in order to deal with and talk about ambiguous loss it's good for us to get a very very good understanding of what it is and I say why not go back to the source who wrote the book on it who who basically quote discovered ambiguous loss so a, a lot of reading would be my recommendation because that's my go to um, and, then, and then additional trainings just in things that have to do with trans people mental health specific so for, for you know I mentioned earlier I am a faculty member with the WPATH Global Education Initiative um, or Institute. They're changing their name, but it's not the only one. There's a there's a new certification program out of Texas called the Queer and Trans Affirming Professional Certification Program. The first cohort is going through right now. And I'm, I'm also on faculty with them. There's lots of trainings that you can people can do online um, that are that don't cost anything. Right. That people can get more and more training. Go to conferences that have either a very large or almost exclusively transgender focus in particular healthcare, which will have the behavioral health component too so just expose yourself right expose yourself to a, a wide diversity of trans people um, and trans thought and trans you know conceptualization and worldview that 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 will help and and we can never stop with that like i can't even stop because it's It's forever changing. Our community is very dynamic, very fluid. That means the terms you learned yesterday are going to be outdated tomorrow in some contexts. Right. So we have to constantly be evolving with this ever evolving community.
0: Wonderful. Xander, thank you so much for spending this time with us. For our listeners who want to learn more about you or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that?
1: I'd say the best way would be through LinkedIn. Um, it's the only social media that I have. So if, if people go to LinkedIn and just type in Xander Keg, K-E-I-G, into the, uh, that little search box at the top left. I also have a website so people can go and look at some of the things that I've done over the years. It's XanderKeg.net.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Xander. You've given all of us, I think, a lot to think about and also um, to work on. Uh, in conceptualizing these not only for ourselves but for our clients and how we show up in the room and make space.
1: Well, and my hope is that the, the this idea these ideas of the conceptualizations and the frameworks right that they're also fluid that they're dynamic that people are going to maybe think of new ones they're going to they're going to expand on the ones that have already been conceptualized right and people will do more research right it's like it this is from 2012 like what does the world look like now it's very different so i w- it would be great if somebody repeated right maybe and did a a, a larger cohort of participants like let's find out do these still stand true to this day? And what else? What else haven't we learned? And what can we know?
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Sander.
1: You're welcome. Thank you, Beth.
0: You've just finished listening to another exclusive Continuing Ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need Continuing Ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership where you'll have access to our growing library of Continuing Ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.